So that's molecular um, spectroscopy for those of you who are interested in that. And uh, welcome. Okay. Okay. Uh, normally, I do scientific lectures. This is my first attempt at trying to do something that's got a heavy philosophical bent. So to all the philosophers out there, at the end, please have mercy on me. Uh, there's the last sentence of the abstract that's published. You might want to erase that. I've taken it a different, slightly different bend when I realized that last sentence entailed about two or three lectures on its own, and y'all would not tolerate that. You know, let's set that. Is it, am I on yet? Okay, so do I need to speak up louder like that? Okay, good. <laughs> do y'all not hear the back? Okay, normally I'm used to doing scientific talks. This is my first attempt at something with a little bit of more philosophical content. So to the philosophers in the audience, have mercy at the end. Uh, I now understand why philosophers tend to read their papers. As a scientist, I'm used to just standing up here and talking, rolling on. But I find out as you do it, there's a lot of merit if you're doing something that's more philosophical oriented to reading it. So I'm going to go in that direction here. The last sentence of the published abstract, you might want to delete it. I found it necessary to take a different direction. 80 to 90% of the thing is correct as written. But I realized the last sentence was another two or three lectures. And I didn't think they would let me go on for that here. So I have handouts available for those who are interested. I'll put a few on the table at the back or have some with me. If you're interested, you can catch me afterwards. OK, are we on? Uh, I'm not getting a picture. Yeah, we need technical help here. 25 seconds, all right. And we're slowly getting there. Are we going to need to do a control F8 here or something? Okay. It'll pop up in a second. This whole thing started out of a sabbatical I took in Budapest about two years. Uh, I had a chance where I was going to do a research project in chemistry. The guy I was planning to work with got laid off, so it kind of put a bit of a crimp in plans. And what happened was I walked up to the chair of the department and said, hey, he said, what sort of little seminar classes would you like to teach? And he asked, and I thought, well, you know, I could do this on chemistry, this on chemistry, and I could do something on the philosophy and history of chemistry. And to my absolute surprise, he said, that sounds good. Do it. And so what you see here is a subset of a bunch of stuff that's come out of that time. We're going to call this a visual roadmap to the definition of science and its relationship to Christianity. Demarcation arguments raise a strange and interesting point. But first, let me define demarcation arguments as attempts to find criteria that separate science from non-science or pseudoscience. Some classic criteria that have been used in the past that subsequently failed are guided by natural law, explanatory by reference to natural law, testable against the empirical world, able to make predictions, and is falsifiable. It is well known that philosophers of science now regard the problem 
of debarkation as not useful and not interesting. That is because they have been unable to come up with a universal definition of science that can be articulated and explicit criteria for the demarcation. That doesn't mean demarcation criteria don't exist. It just means we can't figure out what they are. Thus, they may or may not exist. But this assumes certain things about the definition of science. For example, what is your definition of science? What commonality exists among scientists as to what exactly is science? That the field exists, does fruitful labor, communicates among itself, communicates to the lay public, strongly implies that commonality exists in our definition of what is science. Much can be said about what is common among scientists in the practice of science, but how much is said about what is different among us, that is, we, the scientists. We'll get it more interesting in a moment. In public communications, we adhere to fairly rigid accepted standards for what can be communicated and discussed, as laid down by the gatekeepers of our scientific publication, conferences, and teaching lectures. But in private, among friends of very like mind, very different conceptions arise on what the universe is like, how it is caused, and how it operates, and how one should approach a problem scientifically. Six very good and competent scientists may have six very different approaches or worldviews to view their science from. One mixes a large dose of theology and God's guiding hand into the equation. The other excludes him completely. One stretches science to include parts of theology, philosophy, sociology, etc. Another rigorously excludes them. With the former, the boundaries of science blur outward, creeping like an ink drop on a paper napkin to encompass huge boundaries of what is considered knowledge and truth embodied in other disciplines. With another, it shrinks into a tight, basic core. To another, it blurs over to one side to embrace a particular part of truth whose connection with science seems so obvious to the scientists who embraced it. Perhaps at this point we should digress and draw a picture. Imagine six scientists. Each one has his own working definition of what science is and how it should be done. Let us draw a circle of a particular radius about each scientist who is represented as a point at the center of each circle. All of these six circles have the same radius. These circles are the individual scientist's definition of what science is and how it operates. We have perfect agreement to what science, or excuse me, science is and how it operates. Now place the six scientists slash centers at the same point. We now have perfect agreement to what science is and how it operates. Everybody overlaps completely. Now move the six scientists away from the center and from each other a little bit. We still have a huge area of overlap where everybody can agree as to just what science is and how it operates. But we now have areas of each scientist's opinion that don't overlap with anybody. And some areas that overlap with some other scientists, our fellow comrades in my point of view. But this is not accurate. Some scientists' definition is more expansive. 
Thus, we need to vary the radius of each circle. But why a circle? Why not a square or an ellipse? Perhaps more accurately, we should draw the outline of an amoeba. Each scientist's definition of science is enveloped by a closed shape that plunges here, but not there, into various disciplines as the scientist sees fit. Now, overlap us before these shapes of each scientist's definition of science. We can see a rough and somewhat fuzzy core of commonality in everybody's definition. Obviously, the core is large and stable enough that science as we know it can be carried out and yield fruitful labor. But the picture is still way too simple. First, each amoeba of definition must be set in motion. Constantly moving in time, since our definitions and notions about science are constantly changing as we age, learn, grow, and come into contact with alternate ideas and definitions. Now overlap these wiggling, pulsating amoebas of definition and view the scene. This is how many present-day scientists view the issue of what science is and how it operates. But this is still not a good picture of the beast. To appreciate where we are, we must see and try to understand where we were and where we might be going. Thus set our wiggling, pulsating mass of overlapping amoebas in, the motion, in motion in the direction of time. As we stand back and look at our sheep, shape, we see an undulating, wriggling mass swept out, sweep out a very irregular, constantly changing cylindrical form. You kind of picture that with your eye. It looks like the track left by a persistent amoeba swimming through clear jello. Now color it blue for science and call it what science is and how it operates. Unfortunately, we are far from finished. In this amoeba track, we can take a perpendicular slice that represents the fuzzy average of consensus of what science is at any particular point in time. It will be an overlay of every scientist's amoeba of definition where the overlap of common consensus is colored blue and fades off to another color as we leave the area of common consensus. Now, if we can do this for science, why not for theology, sociology, philosophy, astrology, history, and math? Give each field its own unique color. Now, each field is listed is an overlay of pulsating amoebas of definition of what each field as is held by the respective practitioners of that area. As in science, the particular color of that discipline fades as we leave the area of common consensus. Now, arrange these varying, differently colored, pulsating amoebas of definition in a circle about the amoeba of science definition and slowly bring their centers inward towards the science center until they all overlap with science and some with each other to varying degrees. In each area, as the color of common consensus fades off, it fades into the color of whatever area it overlaps. Now, there's no particular reason why science should be in the center rather than some other field. So let us remove science from the center and exchange it with one of the other fields about a circumference. Now we can create a pattern for each and every field surrounded by the other six areas. Thus, we should have seven such pulsating multicolored patterns, including science. 
with each field in the center being overlapped by the others. To get a truer perspective of just what is science, we should average all of these patterns in some fashion. But at this point, the picture is becoming too complicated to hold in our minds. We've also made the assumption that only six other disciplines should surround the central pulsating amoeba of science definition when there should be many more. It's better to return to our simpler picture of a pulsating amoeba of science definition surrounded by the six or some other number, amoeba of def discipline definition from the other academic disciplines and influence and realize it is a simplification. Next, propel this multicolored orb through time to produce a scintillating irregular cylinder of varying colors stretching backward in time where we try to focus our primary attention on the blue color of science. This is how the historian of science views the definition of science, of what science is, and how it operates. It is easy to see why the historian of science and the practitioner of science, i.e. the scientist, can come to some very different definitions as to what science is. The historian of science sees the entire scintillating irregular cylinder of blue as it stretches out in time and sees trends that hint at a future from a historical perspective. The practitioner of science, who is frequently untrained in a scientific past, sees just the perpendicular slice of the scintillating irregular cylinder of blue representing his time error and says, this is science. But who is right and why? At this point, the modern scientist is asking, what is astrology doing in these six other areas? Okay. Kepler practiced astrology and considered it a serious scientific endeavor. The ancient Babylonians in their religion and astrology developed quantitative astronomical prediction to a stunningly accurate art, far outstripping the early Greek astronomers in accuracy. Modern scientists, including myself, do not consider astrology to be scientific in any useful sense nowadays. But Kepler and the ancient Babylonians certainly took it seriously. What part of my science that I practice today will be viewed as equivalent to astrology in the centuries to come? Would they be right or I? To summarize, a truthful verbal or written definition of science is extraordinarily difficult to find, if even possible. But year after year, we teach our beginning science classes the classic empirical data, hypothesis experiment, induction definition of science, pretending that the scientific method is so clear. Why is this so? What does the typical practicing scientist say when asked, what is your definition of science and what is not science? What does he or she say when they're sitting on the committee of a scientific organization that is charged with answering this question? I stumbled on a possible answer to this question while browsing the web. The National Center for Science Education, NCSE, has posted a list of statements from 63 scientific organizations regarding creationism and intelligent design. And there they are listed. A little difficult to see, but there they are. The National Center for Science Education is not particularly for, fond of any form of creationism or intelligent design, 
So these statements have been selected and filtered with a particular philosophical bias in mind. However, it was the approach of these organizations' committees took in defining science that captured my attention. Nothing brings out philosophical assumptions and defining your terms and definitions quite like a rousing elaboration of origin issues. This slide lists the organizations with posted statements and the web address on the NCSC site for finding them. The list is quite large and covers many branches of science. I analyze these statements the following way. A basic list of different criteria used in the past for defining science or separating science for pseudoscience was tabulated. There are Baconian induction, deduction, repeatability, guided by natural law, explanatory by reference to natural law, testable against the empirical will, able to make predictions, falsifiable, other, and then a couple of statements just kind of rounded a rave against some form of creation in our ID. <laughs> this list is neither exhaustive, complete, or necessarily the best set of criteria to use. Hey, I'm not a professional philosopher of science. But it does give us a starting point to grapple with these statements. All of these criteria have serious, very serious flaws as shown by most modern introductory philosophy of science textbook. As each National Center for Science Education posted statement was analyzed, I enumerated which criteria was used and noted whether any non-listed criteria, which is the other category, was referenced or discussed. The results of this analysis are shown on the next slide and are quite revealing. Baconian induction and testable against empirical will were the hands-down winners. The other category is fairly small, and almost all of its references were to miscellaneous ideas rather than to more robust attempts at definition of science. Taking a quote from the Apollo 13 lunar mission, I'd like to say, Houston, we have a problem. Obviously, philosophers of science and practicing scientists are not on the same page regarding the definition of science. From the beginning, we should tell our students that standard-taught empiricism is a very fractured, flawed perspective. It serves only as a very primitive starting point at best. We should point out the way science is actually practiced is often very difficult to explain, but much richer and deeper, and really not that much different from the truth-finding methods used by other disciplines. We should try to tell the truth about what science is as best as we can and not worry that our students may not get it from the start. It is far better to leave beginning science students with a sense of wonder and, yes, possible bewilderment over what science really is than to leave them with a smug definition that will betray them many years down the road. As Christian educators working in either a Christian or secular setting, we owe it to our students to do a better job of updating the tragically flawed explanations of the scientific method that populate our science textbooks and committees. What's a starting point for this? Perhaps we should talk about the aspects of the scientific method that are beyond any kind of empirical proof or justification. They have to be accepted as basic givens of a rational worldview. Some of you already know. How do you scientifically prove the scientific method? Let's turn to a past master of such scientific analysis in closing. Michael Polanyi and view some of his comments in his classic 1946 book, Science, Faith, and Society. If each scientist 
set to work every morning with the intention of doing the best bit of safe charlatry, which would just help him into a good post, there would soon exist no effective standards by which such deception could be detected. Page 54, Science, Faith, and Society. Only if scientists remain loyal to scientific ideals rather than try to achieve success with their fellow scientists can they form a community which will uphold these ideals. Same page. It would thus appear that when the premises of science are held in common by the scientific community, each must subscribe to them by an act of devotion. Strange words to be coming from a scientist. The tradition of science, it would seem, must be upheld as an unconditional demand if it's to be upheld at all. It can be made use of scientists only if they place themselves at its service. It is a spiritual reality which stands over them and compels their allegiance. Thank you. I'll take questions if we've got any time left. Yes. Thank you. So what do you attribute Baconian induction and testability against empiricism as the top two that were cited in the list of criteria that you have? What makes them so prevalent? Uh, the speaker repeat the question for the recording. Uh, the question asked was, why does Baconian induction and testability turn out to be the most commonly used criteria in terms of these committees that po these uh, organizations have posted the statement? Very good question. I think some of that stems back to you look about every single science textbook I've ever looked at, you hear the classic Baconian induction is it. And then if you think about it, what do most scientists do? They run tests. So I think it tends to come from the experience and basically we live in a world that's just crawling with scientism. And the non-reductionist aspects of life, which I'm, as I grow older, I'm finding out are just everywhere, just crawling. Michael Polanyi will just haunt you if you read him. They just leap out at your face if you look at what he has to say. Uh, is just flies over our head. And uh, I think that's one of the massive failures of our modern society is we've bitten into this lie. And so I think scientists, they fall back on what they know. Yes? I was on one of those committees that attempted to define what was science and not science. And there's many different ways that you can say the same thing. Yeah. And some of the time, sometimes it's a matter of, in a short period of space, having an impact on your legislature. And... Some of those statements are subsumed within the others, so I'm not sure that they're that much different. In many respects, in a lot, some respects, is I think the really good scientists and the guys who really understand their field know this is not what science is really all about. But how do you put that down on a piece of paper? Michael Plani has a concept of called tacit knowledge. Give an example. Try to objectively write down on a piece of paper how you recognize somebody independent of hair color, eye color, clothes, just facial features, and then hand it to someone who's a total stranger and have them use your description to identify a person. Try it. You will find it well nigh impossible. And yet a three-year-old can do it. Our world is crawling with 
elements of tacit knowledge like that. Uh, yes, Jim, in the back. That's good, but I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. That's good, but the issue actually runs much deeper. Go back and look at all the papers you've written, research papers, and ask yourself at how you went about doing that. Did you really use the scientific method? And if you're honest with yourself, you'll find out 70% of what is that paper has nothing to do with the standard Baconian induction at all. It's amazing how much of what our creativity, our hunches, rises out of this well of what I call tacit knowledge. You know, it's, Polanyi summed it up like, you know more than you can tell. And I think this is one idea, if I could, maybe I don't want to, am I running out of time here? Two minutes. Maybe I should take another question here, so give someone else a chance. Yeah, Rob. All scientists know these in an unspecifiable way. We know it, we operate by it, but try to get us to write it down and you won't get a coherent definition because I think it's difficult. Science ultimately operates, and what Polanyi was making, the point I got from him, Science Faith Society is only about 100 pages long. I highly recommend it to everybody if you've not read it. Polanyi has a reputation for him difficult to read. This one's not that hard to read, very written from a scientist's perspectives. But in that, you get the field, it's a community. In essence, it is a community of faith. Without the faith, without the trust, without a certain set of given philosophical values that we all accept, but no one ever discussed, it's just trained into us as we go through the process. You know, science ultimately is called. Polanyi made a very interesting statement. He said, you know, science in America did not really take off until a couple of European scientists came to American universities and started spawning people out of their groups. You know, it's the mentoring aspect. And that's when science really went over big time in the States. This is why a part of me has realized online learning has lots of good things for it, but ultimately when it comes down to the core of learning, I predict online learning is going to be a flop because you eliminate the tacit component of knowledge. Another good book by Polanyi, short one, Tacit Dimension. Another quick question before we run out of time, I guess. It's a good, it's a good way to go, but how do you unpack that more? There's so much behind that. Okay, thank you.